So Shosh, as I was saying, the nation's fiscal imbalance is nothing new. In fact, the U.S. has been in debt since its inception, according to the Treasury Department. Wars, economic downturns, and pandemics have lost the debt to balloon over the centuries. Oh, um, I'm sorry, Kelly. I only caught bits and pieces of what you were just saying about our nation's crippling debt. Yeah, you don't say. Hey, is that a new blender? Making a smoothie? What's going on? No, no, it's a Margaritaville. You mean a Margarita Maker? No, it's a Margaritaville. Uh, that's what they call it on South Park. Okay, but it makes margaritas. Yeah, and only margaritas. Like Jimmy Buffett says, no working during drinking hours. Wait, but you don't drink that often. I know. I'm making a virgin ube rita. You know how much I like ube and like love making stuff with it. I just got this on eBay to set up our show about the economy since we're going to use the South Park Margaritaville episode to help explain why we're trillions of dollars in debt. If it's a conversation about government spending, you'll need liquor. Only if it's ube. Kelly Pearson, award-winning journalist and digital media associate at R Street. I'm Shoshana Weissman. I really like Ube, and I'm a fellow at R Street. And this is Red Tape. And Shoshana eats Ube brownies, which sounds disgusting. How dare you? (laughs) The Margaritaville episode is one of South Park's classics, and it premiered in 2009. So this is just after the 2008 financial crisis, although it could have been written today. Which is helpful as we try to explain why the U.S. is in trouble now. So for those who haven't seen it, the episode begins with the whole town of South Park losing their money in a savings and loan. And you may have seen those and it's gone memes on the Internet where it has a great story. And at the bottom, there's a cartoon guy saying, and it's gone. A really smart decision, young man. We can put that check in a money market mutual fund. Then we'll reinvest the earnings into foreign currency accounts with compounding interest, and it's gone. Yeah, I love that meme. Well, it's from this episode, because you have Stan going into a bank to open an account, and he puts in $100, and within three seconds, his money has evaporated into thin air. It's gone. It's all gone. What's all gone? The money in your account. It didn't do too well. It's gone. What do you mean? I I have $100. Not anymore, you don't. Poof. And then he's like, next customer, someone who actually has money with the bank. And like he keeps doing it to every person who comes in. And then it cuts to Stan's house where Sharon is serving hot dogs and tomatoes again. And when she's asked why they're eating the same thing, which like hot dogs and tomatoes doesn't make much of a meal anyway, uh, (laughs) Randy starts going into a tirade about why the economy is so messed up. But no one can hear him because he's also using this massive, expensive-looking Margaritaville margarita machine at the same time. Mom, Dad, how come there's suddenly no money? I'll tell you what happened, son. They wanted a bigger house and materialistic things that they didn't even need because they thought money was endless. Meaning less money coming in. Right, just like Shoshana cutting me off with a blender. This setup, though, in South Park, it's a setup for a few visions of what went wrong with the economy, a few explanations of what went wrong with the economy. You have the free marketers complaining about low interest rates. You have the Occupy Wall Street folks blaming corporate greed and Cartman being bigoted. Yeah, it's a really unique plot line for Cartman. Fortunately, the townspeople don't end up following Cartman. They end up following Randy, who gets them to cut their expenses to only the quote-unquote bare essentials. These essentials apparently include the Margaritaville machine, which his son Stan tries to return throughout the episode. That's why it's called Margaritaville. One of my favorite memes is Randy standing on stage preaching, like with his arm up, wearing bed sheets like a robe. <laughs> and so why is our economy failing us? Because the government kept interest rates too low for too long. The government took our economy for granted, and now we are all here paying the price. How long will we sit and watch our economy fall as the people... And so I say to you, do not listen to the Wall Street brokers, for they are the ones who put us in this situation. Yeah, and... Whether you've seen it or or not seen it, once people start following Randy, bare essentials really means bare essentials. They start living like people did in Jesus's time. That's why Randy's on that stage with those bedsheets. And this is really useful because it's something we can see today. 
because people get really religious when it comes to things like the role of government, how much government should be spending, and what Congress should budget for. Which I think is a perfect setup for your first interview on today's episode. Tell us who you're speaking with first. I'll be speaking with Nan Swift. She's R Street's resident fellow in the government program. She works with Congress to get R Street's priorities passed. And what that means for you listening is she gets a bunch of bad stuff cut out of bills. And Nan has no problem telling politicians where they're getting it wrong, while also simultaneously being the nicest person on the planet. (laughs) Unlike Cartman, Randy, even kind of Stan, pretty much every character on South Park. I like Stan and Kyle. However, if you want to know how we budget and where the U.S. is getting it wrong, here's my interview with Nan Swift. Nan, you meet with lots of powerful people. How often do you tell them to watch a cartoon and come back when you learn how the world works? Um, (laughs) Rarely, but I do often show cartoons when I have the chance to talk to not powerful people so that they can better understand how Washington works. Namely, I'm just a bill is very helpful, particularly the Simpsons one. And the best cartoons these days are excellent satire of the real world and help us unpack really complicated things. I had a class that I made for myself, an independent study in college on writing satire. And my advisor said, you know, that I should be watching as much Simpsons as possible. He thought that was the best satire out there. Although for anyone who really wants to understand monetary policy, I also recommend some Discworld novels. So Discworld novels. Okay, I'm going to have to check those out. Going back to the South Park episode, Margaritaville, I think it's fascinating how it opens because it opens with Stan and a bunch of others from town putting their money in a savings and loan, and it instantly disappears. And if you know any history, savings and loans went under in the 80s because when interest rates went up, their lower mortgage rates lost value. Also, by federal law, they had to keep the interest rates on things like savings accounts low, which meant a bunch of people took their money out. And when we talk about budgets, when it comes to the federal government, It seems like in recent times, politicians are making budgets assuming that interest rates will stay low forever. And that's a pretty big mistake they're making, right? Yeah. A lot of the spending that we've seen in the last decade and a half really has been perpetuated because of this myth of the forever low interest rates. But anyone who's serious about budget policy, about spending, about finances, knows that that's historically inaccurate. That's inaccurate from a policy perspective, from a way money works, from a Fed perspective, and everywhere else. This is not something that anyone should have counted on. And thank you for sticking with me through the history lesson. I really appreciate it. But there was also a congressman who recently he was on the floor and he said, "Eh, no one's going to call our debt anytime. We can just keep going. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that is crazy (laughs) thinking. But he's not alone in thinking that, I think. Well, we are kind of this powerhouse and that there's not another economy like ours. Most people and most other governments still want to bet on U.S. prosperity and are willing to invest. Part of that is because it's unclear if there's any other safer bets and you have to park your money somewhere if you want to get a return. But that doesn't mean that, you know, some of the Big investment movers and people like that don't, and the markets doesn't mean that they don't send signals that they aren't worried about our debt. And they have for sure sent those signals in the past to other governments and to our government. Our credit has been downrated. It's not, we are not as solid a bet as in the past. I think people shouldn't jump to, they're not going to call our debts in. There's a lot of bad things that can happen before you get to that point. 
people tend to catastrophize instead of actually looking at what's in front of them and what the facts are. That's absolutely true. But it is true that you also have to think logically when it comes to interest rates, because people were, there were some economists who were dragged on Twitter recently because they had pointed out that, you know, interest rates can't stay low forever. There will be times where they rise and you've got to adjust. And people were quite upset about that, but they were correct. And when you go back to the episode, you know, after everyone loses money, Randy starts accusing other people of ruining the economy by taking out stupid loans for things they couldn't afford, all while he's using this massive Jimmy Buffett Margaritaville machine, which to me was kind of a perfect metaphor for how Congress not only budgets, but talks about budgets as well. Actually, what it reminds me of is, you know, grocery shopping the night before Thanksgiving or Christmas Eve morning and everyone in the store complaining about how crowded the store is and how long the lines are. It's like, you're here. You're part of the crowd. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a similar head in the sand problem that Congress really has when it comes to this. Yes, oh, we're going broke. This is terrible, but we need the shiny new ship. We need the shiny new, you know, you name it. I have to ask, a lot of people wonder if Congress actually does budget. And if they do, what are their priorities there? Can you kind of take us through the sausage making process on a, you know, a 30,000 foot level? How many hours do we have? (laughs) Okay, maybe not the entire sausage making process, but are are there certain priorities that really stand out and do they actually budget? In terms of the process, there's actually a couple things that get confused. Technically, the budget is a resolution that the House and the Senate are each supposed to pass. And they create a joint resolution. And this is guidelines that are just for them that says this, these are the top line numbers, these are the big priorities that we have going forward. However, it is not a law. The president does not sign it. And where the money gets spent, and what we often call budgeting, (laughs) although it's technically not, but (laughs) in terms of operationally it is, The spending is in appropriations. Those are annual bills that have to be passed each year that fund the various parts of the federal government. Of course, a lot of money also gets spent under mandatory spending, which we'll talk about, but that's not part of the budget. And increasingly, the budget is a political item that is used only when one party has a majority in each chamber in order to ram through a major priority by taking advantage of a tool within the budget called reconciliation. This was originally intended to help Congress make quick adjustments if throughout the fiscal year something changes. Oh, no, we're not getting as much revenue as we thought, or there's a a crisis we have to respond to and we need to spend more. A bill that would get fast-tracked on the Senate floor that's hard to hold up would be a smart way to make those adjustments so that the budget can continue to be executed on an even keel. However, these days, that's really just a way to jam the other party with a purely partisan plan, whether it's the Trump tax cuts, parts of Obamacare, lots of other things are used that way. And I think that's a very important point where it's not just one party doing it, it's all of them. Yeah. This is uh, something where everyone has not blood on their hands, green on their hands. They have red ink (laughs) on their hands. Everyone does. And it's made, you know, a budget, this really kind of toxic political thing when it's not supposed to be that way at all. Budgets are supposed to be a reflection of our shared priorities. And it's important that these are shared, one, just like interest rates, 
you aren't going to be in charge of Congress forever. <laughs> um, these things change all the time and change hands. And you don't want or you shouldn't want to push through a wholly partisan policy that the other side finds anathema because then you get wild swings in our policy. This is bad for businesses. It's bad for individuals who can't plan. Businesses love things to just stay the same. And it's bad for Congress. Instead of Congress doing its job, which is funding the federal government and oversight, everyone spends all their time trying to undo the previous guy's thing instead of prioritizing things where there's more buy-in and things are more sustainable, less of this you know, whiplash that voters and our economy has. Another issue that's very critical that you've written about is the Farm Bill. For those who don't know, what is the Farm Bill? What does it do? The Farm Bill is a package that comes around every five years. It has a five-year authorization that funds key subsidies and, and other policies for farmers. Things that are supposed to be in place to help Farmers avoid disasters, but are really so generous that actually, you know, one program is called a shallow loss program. So it's not if you take a big hit, it's if, oh, I just didn't make quite as much. So there are actually profit guarantee programs, which any business would love to have. It also reauthorizes the crop insurance program, which is more payouts on top of the other subsidies. And there's some conservation programs in there. It's also how we fund the supplemental nutrition program or SNAP food stamps as as some people come to know them. So it's a lot of food stuff. We focus on the farm side because those are often some of the very richest people. We're talking, you know, Bill Gates is a huge farmland owner who is a recipient of these subsidies. And here at R Street, we think it's really important that We go after the subsidies that benefit people who don't really need them before we tackle other problems. It seems like there's a lot of poor planning or old thinking when we try to help farmers. That's one reason why we focus on the farms in Title I. Other Republicans will remind us that, well, Nan, SNAP is where a lot more of the money is with the big dollars. But when you think about how it's used and who the beneficiaries are on an individual basis, those aren't big bucks. Those are much needed dollars going to those who need them most in most cases. And, you know, let's fix that. If there are people getting food assistance that don't need it, but let's do that after we have the wealthy people off welfare. What an idea. The wealthy people off welfare. (laughs) That would be amazing. But when you think back to the South Park episode that we're talking about, Margaritaville, as you get further in, people start blaming things like Wall Street, government spending, other stuff for the bad situation they're in. But there's a couple of things that have popped out to me, which is one, some of it is our priorities, right? It's our choices that we're making or forcing our Congress people to make. But a lot of the U.S.'s annual budget is really locked in. That's true. And I'll tackle that part first. Most of our spending is what's called mandatory spending or for entitlements. Other people call it direct spending. It's on autopilot. These are, you know, not dollars that members of Congress have authority over to adjust on a year by year basis the way they do discretionary dollars. Unfortunately, this is due to a couple of things. One, We have two really, really big programs, Social Security and Disability Insurance, as well as Medicare. We have an aging population who are taking advantage of these programs, and we don't have the funds to sustain these long-term. We don't have the number of workers we had in the past to maintain the high levels of care and, and other services that People were promised people are also living longer. So that's one problem 
But another factor when it comes to mandatory spending is particularly when there have been spending caps in place, as happened during most of the last decade, putting spending on autopilot became a really a favorite way of legislators to free up room under the caps. They did this with veterans spending. They've done this with a lot of other areas of spending. They say, well, now this is mandatory. This is just going to go out the door, thus leaving more room for us to spend on, on other things. So it's also become a much abused gimmick. So putting a spending cap is actually a gimmick in the world of Congress. Yes. Well, when you have a spending cap in place, then all Congress can do is think of how to work around it, whether it's by using mandatory spending, designated funds as emergency spending, so off budget or just special. There's always a way for Congress to get what they want. (laughs) That is what you're telling me, essentially. There is. Well, and that's what people need to fundamentally understand. I strongly support all kinds of budget process reform plans and things of that nature. I think we should make it as easy as possible and have the right incentives in place for Congress to want to do the right thing. But we also have to accept that at the end of the day, short of changing the Constitution, there's very little that can actually bind Congress. If they want to spend, they're going to spend, which is why it's up to voters to respond and to demand better from their legislators. Unfortunately, the way these things work, if you benefit From the programs that get a lot of money, you're going to keep voting for people who perpetuate those things. We're kind of in, you know, just a tough place unless members of Congress are willing to make hard, hard choices. And the longer they wait to do so, the harder those choices will be. And you bring up a good point because it really is about we the people, because there was a fascinating Associated Press poll that was just released and they asked people, you know, does Congress spend too little or too much? And everyone pretty much said, oh, they spend way, 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 way too much. But when you drill down into the areas that people really cared about, they asked people, does Congress spend too much or too little on education? They go, oh, too little. Healthcare, too little. Social Security, way too little. Medicare, too little. They spend too little on border security, military. That one seems a little bit even Steven, right? With too much and too little. But you can see that all these really huge programs, Medicare, Social Security, regular people, even though they say in theory, Congress spends too much, we have too much debt, they actually want more spent on the things that they care about. Yeah, so that's exactly right. And that's a very problematic incentive structure that we have in our system. This is one reason why at our street, we focus so much on increasing congressional capacity specifically to do better oversight, because in so many cases, it doesn't matter how much we're spending on something. It's really how we're spending. I wish people could see that like everything the government touches, it does really, really poorly it almost doesn't matter what we spend in terms of a dollar figure. We just do it badly. And the plans we make, they don't work. There's always a host of unintended consequences of other costs that are associated with practically any decision. And that, yeah, the government is just not good at so much of what it does, which, you know, to me, that says we should stop doing those things. But we can also do those things better and use our dollars more effectively. Absolutely. And sort of a three-part question here. Despite all this, is there really a point to budgets? How would you get to a good budget? And how do you balance those needs that everyone has from the government with the principles of a good budget? Well, it is important 
to have a budget. It's important because, like I said before, this is where we lay out these are what our shared priorities are. This is what's important to us as a country, and this is what we're going to do. Those types of plans, those types of statements are important, but budgets need to matter. As my former boss, the late Senate budget chairman NZ would say budgets have to matter. And right now they don't have any teeth. And it's a process that's just politicized. Like I said before, it's used to ram things through. Better budgets could be made to matter, could bring in and reflect better the wide variety of perspectives that we have in Congress and across the country. This is a very evenly split country. And while I might not love all the priorities that one side or another has, there's something right and beautiful about our legislation reflecting all of those opinions. And we can do that better by letting more members have access to power, by taking votes more often and making sure that those votes count. So as we end our time here, you go back to the episode of South Park, the Margaritaville episode, and people get in town very religious when you ask them how to solve the problem and what happened to their economy. I love thinking about faith in money because if you think about it, if you really think about it, money doesn't mean anything. Like I can remember, I can even remember where on the road we were sitting in the backseat of my mom's station wagon as a fifth grader, really starting to think about money. And then for a second, you become a communist because you're like, why even have money? Let's all just do what we want to do and trade with other people. But then my mom reminded me that, well, then you don't really have a check and balance for people acting badly. And that's what the market gives us. But my favorite example of faith in money is the example of Brazil. In 1980, they'd had decades and decades of horrible inflation problems. And they brought in an expert, I'm simplifying this, who set up a system and said, okay, what we need to do is we all need to agree on what the real value of the money is. And so over time, you know, they set up kind of a new internal exchange rate. And then they kind of flip the switch and they're like, and now that's the new money, the real, the real. And yeah, it's basically like one day you have one kind of money and it's worth this. The next day you have another kind of money and it's worth that. And it saved them. Now they haven't been without problems, but it's nothing like what it was before. It's a fascinating story. I urge people to read more about it because it's really, really interesting and says a lot about, about just people and human nature. And that's, if we're going to talk about the real problem with the federal budget, it's that it's run by humans and not robots. <laughs> Everything would be easier if it was just robots making these choices, but it's all very complicated people making decisions for a host of reasons that defy logic and have nothing to do with the numbers on the page. If anything, I think prices and money are the closest thing to real magic that we have here. A price has so much information in it without anyone saying this is all the information in this price. And the same with the market, which is far from perfect, but it contains so much information about our future, about what people are feeling, about emotions, but also about the real things that are happening and the choices that we all collectively need to make and hold our members accountable for. So you're saying my Congress people and my senator are not ordained with power from God. I am saying that. <laughs> So yeah, there's a lot in this, but my favorite things here is that Bill Gates gets farm bill subsidies. As if he needs public assistance. Oh, goodness. That's ridiculous. I also thought it was interesting how many state governments rely on the feds just sending them money to cover their debts. I've lived in a, a blue state. I've lived in a red state. And 
it's the same. You know, there's a lot of reliance on the federal government to pay for a portion of their budget. However, there's a lot of people who argue, you know, they use it better than the feds do. Yeah, I think both of us in our street generally like federalism, not to say it's everything, but I think that it, it is overall a good principle as well as like subsidiarity is we're just like the smallest local entity handle stuff because it's, it's closer to the people and does a little better. But it is kind of funny to watch the flow of money and also just weirdly spent money from the government. And I think the farm bill is a really good example of just weirdly spent money. Like it, it kind of makes sense because of course people want more and better stuff, but of course people also conflate more spending with better outcomes. And in different areas, sometimes you'll see that more spending doesn't always work quite that way or even go to the places you would think it would go if you increase spending, like Bill Gates getting farm subsidies. <laughs> well, it also is an answer for why it is that Congress cannot set a budget, right? Because they have all these people coming to them all the time with more spending requests. And it's really, really hard to say no in a lot of cases because those are your voters, those are your constituents, and they're wanting more and you're supposed to represent them, right? They want more for their district. And Nan talked about this, you know, setting a budget for your household and we should do that too. But that oftentimes comes up against political reality and it's us that gets in the way of a good budget which is sad to say, but it's true. It's interesting, too, because Governor Ducey, the former governor of Arizona, when he talks about budgeting, he's just very matter of fact, like, this was my job here. I did the budget because we had to pass a budget and that's the thing. And like, he took it as very solemn, like, this is my duty here to make sure that I sign a budget and help get one passed, too. <laughs> well, if you talk to Congress about it, they're like, wow, like, maybe, <laughs> wow. It's just kind of, it's so funny to see the difference. And I know... Jonathan Bidlack, who you're talking to next, will talk about the difference between the federal government and states a little bit here, too. Yeah. And he also talks a lot about those political realities that people tend to run up against when they try to actually get those significant budget cuts and what the government actually is required to spend on. So we're going to take a break and Red Tape from our street will be right back. Welcome back to Red Tape from R Street. Okay, Shosh, so when we last left off on Margaritaville, we had Kyle stepping in kind of as this Jesus figure. And he's going, you just have to have faith in the economy. The economy is not just this magic thing, right? You have to have faith. Yeah, I really love that one because economics is social and the, the value of money is social. I mean, to toss in another South Park episode where the alien visited and he gave like them alien money and then they built all this stuff with it. The aliens were like, are you guys so stupid to not realize that you're the ones who gave the money value. And I think that that's a real piece of it here, too, that we forget how much confidence and trust in the economy matters and how much this is really a social exercise. And as I'm going to talk with Jonathan, the solution to problems, uh, you know, in the episode, it's presented as a good thing. I don't know that we can say that now. Just sort of running the credit card and not really caring about the rest. So I had to ask Jonathan about that as well. That's great. I'm excited to hear the conversation and uh, and how Jonathan takes the South Park tie-in. <laughs> he did really well. Here's my conversation with Jonathan Bidlack about why we're spending, what we're spending, where we're getting it right, and where we're getting it wrong. Jonathan, South Park's really the reason we're tens of trillions of dollars in debt in this country, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's all South Park. We can blame it all on all on that one show. <laughs> Not blame Canada, blame South Park. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but we're talking today about the Margaritaville episode, and it really packs a lot in. It starts with the townspeople losing their money after putting it into a savings and loan, which happens because the entire economy is crashing. Then the blame game starts. And for me, it's really interesting because I think it sets up three common perceptions of why we're in the pickle we're in now. Bad policy, which in the episode is because of low interest rates, fat cat greed, which people associate with Wall Street, or spending on things we don't need. Do any of these philosophies guide Washington spending? <laughs> uh, I mean, can I pick all three, I suppose? I think that there's a little bit of a disconnect sometimes between how people think about spending decisions in their own lives when it's their own money that's at stake 
and how they think about spending decisions when it's someone else's money and you're spending on on things for someone else. I think in many ways, it's sort of the naive view of policy that, you know, you want to do something good or you want government to do something. And so the response is just, well, we just need to spend a little bit more money, right? So we don't have a good education in this country. Let's just spend more money, even though we know that we spend more per pupil than any other country in the world, right? Spending is not necessarily a bad thing. It's again, a question of what are you spending on and what are you getting in return? And so to some degree, I mean, it, it largely is a cost benefit analysis. And if we're wasting money, then all that's doing is taking away the ability to have more resources to spend on the things that are actually good and that we actually need. And so, you know, is it greed? Is there an element of greed? Sure, that comes into play. But I think it, it largely is just a question of incentives. And when we have people who are elected officials who are largely incentivized to talk about all the great things that they're doing and all the great things that the government is doing, they tend not to have the same kind of incentive to economize on costs because it's just a lot easier to tout all of the times when things go right. But as people who are policy analysts, right, we need to be kind of looking at this in a little bit more of a dispassionate way and really assessing again, okay, yeah, you're doing these great things, but what is it really costing and is that worth it? Yeah. And when we talk about that, you know, fat cat greed or, or Wall Street greed, the critique is really the influence that well-heeled people, specifically bankers, really have on what we spend on. And then the other side goes, well, politicians want to buy off votes. But you're really saying those are a couple of factors into why we spend the way we do. There's oftentimes many parties that are to blame. I mean, you know, when you talk about inflation, for example, most recently, there are a number of people who have sort of had a hand in that, right? You had the Biden administration and, you know, the American Rescue Plan and all of the spending that took place during COVID that may not have been necessary, for example, at that point of the pandemic. But you had the Trump administration spending like crazy, right, both because of the pandemic, but also before the onset of COVID-19. Um, you had the Federal Reserve being, you know, sort of really slow to respond and in many ways, of course, expanding the money supply dramatically, in a sense, enabling this expansionary fiscal policy. And I think that, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people look at these issues and they just want to go and sort of slap their pre-existing ideological perspective as their preferred explanation, whether that's a libertarian blaming the Federal Reserve or it's or it's, you know, someone blaming the Obama administration or, or the Bush administration before. But sort of like people just want to go and say, this is the one thing, because it's easier to wrap your mind around it. But when you're talking about economic phenomena, they're very rarely that simple. And let's go back to the South Park episode. And we see throughout here, Stan's trying to return the Margaritaville machine his dad got through financing. And he ultimately ends up at the U.S. Treasury. So we're talking about all the people who possibly have a role in our spending issues in this country, does the U.S. Treasury actually play a role in Washington's spending habits? I mean, there's the Treasury and there's the Federal Reserve. I think the easiest way to, to understand this for you know a, a layman or a layperson is to just recognize that they control the money supply. There are many different ways to theoretically manage the currency in, in a country, but essentially we we manage the country's finances through a sort of quasi-independent bank. It operates independently from Congress and the president, but of course, the president also goes and appoints people who serve on the Federal Reserve. But at the end of the day, right, through the issuance of bonds, they're sort of able to expand or reduce the amount of, of currency that's available for economic transactions. And that can have effects that are either inflationary when it's perhaps too loose, or it can have effects that are sort of, you know, a way of curbing growth when policy tightens. And they utilize, obviously, interest rates are the most common, but there's other things that the Federal Reserve does in particular, like encouraging banks to hold reserves at the Federal Reserve and paying interest and all these sorts of things. So there's a lot of, obviously, nuance and, and complicating factors. But by and large, these entities, Treasury and the Federal Reserve, are an important intermediary to how transactions sort of take place in the broader economy. So for those who don't know, what would be the difference between what the Federal Reserve does and the U.S. Treasury does? 
Yeah, I mean, they're basically flip sides of the same coin. I mean, you know, Treasury is the entity that's ultimately responsible for issuing debt. And so, well, what is debt? Well, I mean, it's just largely an IOU. Okay, so when you go and you buy that Treasury bill, that that bond, you know, for your kid or grandkid, and it pays out in the future, you're essentially loaning money to the federal government to go and spend on whatever it is they may want to do. The Federal Reserve is able to go and control interest rates. So the treasury is issuing that debt, but the Federal Reserve kind of has control over interest rates. And through doing that, they're able to go, as I said earlier, you know, expand or reduce the amount of currency or, or I guess the amount of money, right, that is available within the economy to transact these sort of various transactions. And as I said, it obviously gets complicated when you start talking about the relationship of the money supply and economic growth, but, uh, but they're sort of all playing a part in terms of encouraging economic transactions. Now, you did a great job explaining that, I have to say. <laughs> I think South Park also does that really great job because when Stan gets to the Treasury, his Margaritaville machines valued at $90 trillion. (laughs) So that's trillion with a T, which he acknowledges is crazy and luckily doesn't take the money. But he gets to see that decisions are made like how to bail out insurance companies, how much we should bail out a bank by having Treasury officers... It's kind of gross for people, so earmuffs if you have to. Cut the head off a chicken, have it run around a game board. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, that's kind of nuts, right? Because it is South Park. But it does seem to the average person that things like how much we're going to spend on education or the military or to bail out someone are random. Is that really true? How are judgments actually made about the value of things and what we're going to spend on? I don't know if I would say it's random so much as just, you know, there are competing interests, right? The federal government in particular does so much and is involved in so many different things that it's very hard for every member of Congress to be an expert on all of these things. You know, their background isn't necessarily in policy the vast majority of the time. It's, you know, maybe they're a doctor or maybe they're a businessman or an attorney or whatever it might be. So what happens, I think, is this is sort of almost, you know, decentralized decision-making process whereby they're all kind of lobbying for what's important to the people who live in their district. Maybe uh, they have a large military installation and so maybe have an increased understanding or need for, you know, dollars to flow to the Pentagon that benefits them. Or maybe they have an agriculture-oriented district, right? And so they're kind of very concerned about, about that sort of thing. So a lot of times these decisions, right, what legislators are effectively lobbying for is, is driven by what's important to their constituents. Now, what Congress or what the government broadly is supposed to do is essentially have a budget where you're looking at all of these requests and all of these various needs, and you're weighing those trade-offs against one another. The challenge, of course, is that that process increasingly in recent years has broken down a lot. We don't necessarily have budgets being presented or at least budgets that are realistic or anything more than kind of just a a way of signaling to your political base. So we end up in an environment then where it's very easy to overspend because Again, their incentives are to brag about kind of bringing home the the pork, if you will, or the bacon to their district and talking about how much new funding they've gotten for that military base or they've gotten for farmers or whatever it may be. Yeah. And I hear a lot from the left on how we should model ourselves after European governments. And they really talk about the tax rates there. But something we don't talk about with European governments is how much fiscal discipline they actually have. They don't spend as much as we do on the widest variety of things. That's such a great point. In many ways, they spend more, but they actually have a plan and have sort of rules in place that guide what that spending is. So, you know, if there's some sort of generous social program that you want to pay for, you have to have the means of actually getting those dollars in, having enough revenue to pay for them. You know, the United States is in this this sort of unique position, as is talked about a lot, in that we're the reserve currency of the world. There's always demand for U.S. dollars to engage in transactions. And so, you know, we maybe have a little bit more flexibility and can play a little bit uh, fast and loose, if you will, with the money supply in a way that, that certain European countries aren't able to do. But many of these countries that we think about, Sweden is a great example. Everyone talks about how Sweden is this socialist paradise or, or, or whatever, you know, maybe Bernie Sanders might want to portray it as. But actually, you know, Sweden in the 1990s was facing an entitlement crisis. 
And they kind of had to deal with that. And the way that they, they coped with it was by imposing sort of statutory controls on what they could spend, where they basically limited expenditures as a function of what, you know, what their available tax dollars were. And we've seen that countries like Sweden or Switzerland or generally, you know, countries that have these kinds of rules in place have tended to fare better in instances where, uh, you know, in the financial crisis in 07 or 08, or they they fared better from a, a governmental finances standpoint during the pandemic, because they were sort of in a better place to begin with, so that when these emergencies came up, they were able to go and deal with them much more effectively without necessarily blowing up their budgets. So it's something that I think the United States would well serve to emulate and and, you know, maybe rethink the debt limit a, a little bit and recognize that there are alternatives that I think could potentially serve us better. And speaking of debt and this conversation coming from the left, if we go back to this Margaritaville episode, the solution to all the economic problems comes when Kyle pays off everyone's loans with a credit card and then everyone starts buying stuff again. And is this really how the economy works? And is there any downside to what Kyle does when we look at it from a government spending standpoint? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's a, a reference to, to bailouts. And I think that's something that, you know, we could probably spend our whole time talking about. There's sort of this attitude that a lot of people have taken that, you know, well, it, it's the whole idea of being too big to fail. And the, the Federal Reserve is going to step in and, and solve these situations. And, and you know, there's a lot of good in that, right? There are ways that that government can go and sort of, you know, smooth out certain panics and things like this that, that occur. But there are also very real costs to bailouts. You know, the way that people become incentivized to essentially take on more risk, right? Moral hazard. And so I think these are some of the most complicated policy questions for, for us to be debating, right? What are we comfortable doing? When you look at some of the bank failures that have occurred recently, you know, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and First Republic, there's this idea that, well, we're stepping in to make depositors whole because depositors are just depositing their money at the bank, but we're not necessarily going and bailing out the people who actually own the banks. And so, you know, we've kind of made this determination that we are okay with that kind of intervention, but we're not okay with kind of full-fledged bailouts like we may have seen in the past. I would argue there are certain answers that are better than others and that, and that you know, we should obviously be thinking about things like moral hazard very concretely. Is there anything else that we really need to be discussing when we're talking about things like the debt and deficit. This is maybe kind of weird as someone who does budget policy, but, you know, to some degree, I actually don't like talking about the debt all that much. The real question is, where are our actual risks? We talk about the already accumulated debt, but there are all of these other promises that we've made, right? These unfunded liabilities that are really important. That part of the debt picture is oftentimes just completely forgotten. The other thing that I think is completely forgotten about is just spending itself. In many ways, spending is the core problem in part because it's what's driving the national debt and it's what's driving the sort of accumulation of additional debt over time, but also because spending itself can be a cost that we pay whether we're realizing it or not immediately. And I think that we we oftentimes forget about that immediate cost and we focus too much on you know, the national debt is so many trillions of dollars, so it's easy to get really worked up over the idea of, of having a lot of debt that we forget that there are all these other costs that we should be thinking about as well. And it might surprise you who's actually responsible for all the spending, you know, maybe their public perception or their public words are different from their actual votes. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things to say about that. But I'll tell you one quick funny story. When we crunched the numbers for the very first session of Congress, the two lowest ranking, lowest spending members of the U.S. Senate at the time were Rand Paul and Bernie Sanders, which was hilarious. And it makes total sense when you think about it, but it was the kind of thing that I never would have recognized until actually doing the math. Rand Paul is perhaps a little more self-explanatory, but you know, in Bernie's case, he may want to have really expansive social programs. But when you look at well, what bills is Congress actually enacting into law, 
a lot of those things Bernie Sanders is is pretty fiscally conservative on. I mean, he tends to not want to support various instances of corporate welfare. He doesn't want to support massive increases to the Pentagon budget. And so when you look at a lot of the new spending that's being enacted, oftentimes Bernie Sanders has a more fiscally conservative impact on the federal budget than certainly more moderate Democrats, but also a large number of Republicans, even some that are perceived as being sort of fiscal hawks. I would end this on you blowing my mind about Bernie Sanders right now. (laughs) But I do want to end it with what we should actually take away from this South Park episode as we're faced with some very serious questions about our fiscal future, because the thing that I really liked about the episode was it had so many different points of view about what to do going forward. But what do you think we should be doing? We should be being more realistic with our expectations about what the proper role and the proper size and scope of government is and should be. There are many ways in which the government is not a household, it's not an individual. But I do think there are a lot of lessons that we can be learned by thinking about it in those terms. And the biggest is just trade-offs. I mean, if we want to spend on something, and we decide that it's an important enough priority for government to create a program or increase spending on an existing program or whatever it may be, then we should recognize that maybe there are other things that we should cut in response. Maybe there are offsets, right? I think the way that adults typically think in terms of their own household finances, which is that I have so much money and I need to go and figure out how best to spend it. And and when you recognize that you know, you're running up too much debt on the credit card, most reasonable people are not going to say, well, I just need to cut out Starbucks and that's going to go and solve the problem. Or they're not going to say, oh, well, I just need to go to my boss and ask to double my salary. So basically, you're just telling me there's no avocado toast. That I can <laughs> <have>. <laughs> so if I cut the avocado toast out of my budget, like it's not going to do anything. <laughs> no matter how many times budget policy is explained to me, it just goes way over my head, Kelly. Right. Bernie Sanders' fiscal conservative is still throwing me <laughs> from this interview. But a couple of things that strike me is that gloom and doom, that's not entirely accurate. The U.S. has a lot of tools it can use to, quote unquote, solve budget problems that maybe other countries don't. But this might be a case where we learn from what happened in Europe a couple of decades ago and start having some real discipline in our budget. Either way, we need to make some hard choices now, I think, to avoid even harder ones in the future. I don't think we can do what Kyle does at the end of this episode and just run up the credit card and forgive debt. It just seems like a Hollywood fantasy there. I don't know. Like, I'm open to picking a guy and putting all the national debt on him. We just, like, choose a guy maybe through a wheel, maybe a flat wheel. Maybe we, like, again, earmuffs. Maybe we cut a chicken's head off and, like, have it run around a table of every adult name in America. Let's wrap this all up. What did we learn today, Shosh? Oh, man. I mean, I'm still stuck on Bill Gates and getting farm subsidies <laughs> and people don't know what they want with spending and that I still feel like the states are a lot better with spending. But those are my big takeaways and that I still don't want to work on budget policy because it's too much. That's my biggest takeaway. Yeah, it seems a lot more complicated <laughs> than it needs to be. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> So what'll be on the next episode? Next week's episode, I'm talking to Adam Fear about how our robot overlords are going to take our jobs. Or actually why we should not panic about AI. And I'll be speaking with Dr. Christy Smith. She's going to tell us what clean slate laws are and how they can help people who just got out of jail or prison get a job. Something that's good for them and their communities. Until then, thanks for listening. Red Tape is produced by R Street in partnership with Pod People. To learn more about the work we're doing at R Street, follow us on LinkedIn and on Twitter. And our Twitter is at RSI. And for more resources and information on the topics we explored today, you can check out rstreet.org. Also, if you've enjoyed listening to today's episode, the best thing you can do is share Red Tape with a friend or an enemy. And if you're an overachiever, please leave a glowing review and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help us introduce the show to new listeners. I'm Shoshana Weissman. I'm Kelly Pierce. Thanks for listening. Hi, people.